Have you ever stopped to think about how our childhood impacts how we show up at work today? I'm not talking about blaming our parents. I'm talking about understanding how our responses today might be linked to messages we internalized when we were young. October is National Mental Health Screening Month, and we are to have joining us a very special guest, Tracy Trifles, the Executive Director of the Ellison Center. And let me tell you, she is going to blow your mind. You might hear in these episodes that there are times when I couldn't formulate my next question because I was busy processing the incredibly powerful information that she was sharing. This is a special one, friends, and we're really glad you're here. Welcome to the Grounding and Growing Leadership Podcast, where everyone is a leader and leadership starts with you. I'm Tara. And I'm Pamela. Thank you for listening and inviting us along on your leadership journey. Today, we're going to go in a different direction than we normally go, and we're going to be talking about mental health in leadership. And we brought in someone who I know is going to be an incredible resource for you listeners and maybe some even unexpected qualifications in terms of the work that she does. And so we're going to get into that. Let me first introduce our guest today. So Tracy Streifels. Tracy, you have a lot of letters behind your name. MS, MFT. You want to, can you just tell us what those letters mean before I, I, sh- I finish your intro? I sure can. MS means Master's of Science. I have a master's degree. LMFT is Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And then the IMHE stands for a specialized endorsement in infant and early childhood mental health. Tracy is an infant mental health clinical mentor and executive director at Ellison Center, where she provides outpatient clinical services to families with young children, as well as reflective consultation services to early childhood and home visiting programs across Minnesota. Tracy also teaches for St. Cloud State's Marriage and Family Therapy Program and the Center for Early Education and Development at the University of Minnesota. In addition, Tracy serves as the co-chair of the Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health Infant and Early Childhood Division Advisory Board. She is passionate about sharing her background knowledge in challenging behaviors and early childhood development with caregivers of young children. And today, she's agreed to help us talk about how Infant mental health impacts us as adults and as leaders. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today. It is so exciting to have you on the podcast. And I'm nerding out just a little bit because I'm really excited about today. I have seen it in leadership over and over. We have seen it as we coach people, just the importance of mental health and leadership, but how the story of our childhood impacts us even still today. And so Tracy, we like to start out all of our podcasts with talking about our top strengths. And I'm excited because I've already seen yours and I know that we have a couple that are the same, but which of your top strengths is currently your favorite or are you appreciating the most right now and why? That's a great question. So first of all, I just have to say how powerful it has been to learn what my strengths are and to understand how they show up in this work. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that there's two of them that right now I feel like I'm appreciating the most. And one of them is the input. Um, And part of the reason that one is standing out to me right now is really this idea around um, not just collecting information, but also helping to broaden the thinking of others and helping them maybe take what I have been learning or understanding about them and helping them use it in their work or in their relationships, which also seems very applicable to our conversation today. 
Then the other one that I have really just been appreciating lately is the idea around restorative. And a little bit on a personal level, I've had some health issues this year and surgeries. And so feeling an in internal restorativeness, but also in my work, I really do enjoy loving solving problems and not just as a problem solver, but like in the analyzing, like what worked, what didn't work, how can we change this for next time so that we can manage these situations. And sometimes in leadership, we get lots of things that come our way that need solving. And so it's been really helpful, not only to have that, but also to understand my approach to that part of the work. Tracy, so restorative notices the opportunity to bring something to be whole again, which I think is so beautiful for the work that you do. But I love what you just described because you combine that with your learner and input and there's a continual improvement, continual learning cycle for yourself learning from what did we just do? What worked? What didn't work? Adjust. What did we just do? What worked? What didn't work? Adjust. <laughs> learn parts also. What didn't we figure out yet? And what can we learn to bring into this for the next time too? So yeah, that learner part, like that's my top one. And it definitely drives all of the others in some ways at times. Wow. You also, I think Tracy, so full disclosure, I'm a volunteer for the Ellison Center, which is the organization you work that you are the executive director of and have gotten to know Tracy through that work. And because I feel so strongly about your mission and we're going to hear about the Ellison Center and the work that you do. But I think one of the things I appreciate so much about you as a leader, Tracy, is your humility. You have such a natural curiosity for people and being able to be present. And so I think that that learner, that posture of learner, along with opportunities for growth, just really brings, I think makes you so approachable as a leader. And this is maybe just a little plug too, but as it, when I started this work, I didn't know these things about myself. Like I had known myself through maybe some other personality assessments or things out there. But when Tara did the strengths with me and helped me understand what these were and how they worked together, it was powerful. So for anybody out there who doesn't know their strengths yet, I highly recommend that you go down that path, explore it. Yeah. We all have to be um, beginners, Tracy, <laughs> and we all have a leadership origin story. And um, I, I just find it so fascinating to see, as you said, that journey from where you started, even to what you have just recently learned. But can you tell us a little bit more about the origin story and then now leading up to being the executive director of the Ellison Center? Definitely. I think, I think anytime you ask somebody about their story, and maybe this goes also just to the who I am, but I actually went back and I'm like, where did this idea around leadership in my world get started? And I would say it was all the way back in high school. I was in leadership roles within our marching band and um, school positions as well. And the interesting part, though, is I never named myself as a leader. I always saw myself as a, a person who came along other people to support them or somebody who could naturally make sense of things and help other people say, yep, let's go on this journey together. But I didn't necessarily name myself as a leader. So that when everybody started calling me a leader, I had to figure out like, what does that mean? Mm, yeah. What does that mean to me? Which also went back to a narrative that I had that leaders in some ways were people of, had power and control. And I didn't necessarily like the feeling of power and control that people might have over other people. But this idea of coming alongside of other people as a leader and as a type of leadership that I could get behind. Yeah. Um, 
So it's been a natural growth journey to step into this idea that I am a leader and having other people speak into that for me as well. But I think about how many different jobs I had and how many different, because we all have interesting stories to our careers that most people wouldn't know. Like I was a lighting and fireplace manager for a hardware store in town. Yeah, I was in college and that was a leadership position. I was a manager and I was 19 or 20. Like I was young (laughs) to think to my own kids doing something like that. And it's, it's a lot, but then I was a teacher, a preschool teacher for a long time, and then stepped into leadership within our, the Head Start agency that I worked in. So I feel like every one of those positions has taught me another part of what it means to be a leader, but also what it might look like to just really think about how I can influence things and strengthen that agency or that person through this. And I guess in some ways for me, it's also mission driven. Like I I don't necessarily look at it as if I'm the only person could do that could do this work, but I'm the person that was put here for right now to do this work. My husband and I have a phrase that we use of just being the guitar pick, which came from a, a church service a long time ago, actually, where we were learning about this idea that part of our role in the world is I don't have to be the guitar. I don't have to even be the strings. I don't have to be the notes on the page. My job is just to be the guitar pick and to go and do what I am asked to do. And so that's also a piece of what I bring with me into my leadership is part of that mission. I love the guitar pick imagery of mm-hmm. thinking about that. I, and I will say, I don't think most leaders think about themselves as the pick in that imagery, yeah. but I do think it speaks deeply to the servant leader that you are. So Tracy, tell us, so you were the director of Head Start prior to coming to actually, no, is that not true? No, I was, I had a solo department at Head Start for a long time of mental health coordinator. Um, But when I went into that position, I took the position of somebody who had been there for quite a while. And when I got in there, I actually got to redesign it based on what I knew that families needed because I had been a teacher for Head Start for eight years and then was going to school while I was teaching and then moved into this position when I graduated. And so I was given the rewrite the program based on what you think it is needs to be. And so that was a leadership role in regards to, okay, I'm thinking about the families. I'm thinking about the teachers. I'm thinking about the home visitors. And got to recreate and redesign that entire program and then brought that into the leadership programs at Head Start as well. And so what did you see at Head Start? Because you're one of the founders of Allison Center. So how did you go from redesigning this program at Head Start to now being the executive director? That probably goes a little bit into kind of how Allison Center became to be. So um, so I'm going to weave those together if that's all right. So while I was in my role at Head Start, I had some, I call them frolics, like friends that are colleagues, we call them frolics in my world. So I had some frolics that I would get together with on usually on a Friday afternoon. And we sometimes would complain or commiserate about how challenging it was to find high quality professionals to refer the families that we were working with to for mental health services. And how even the programs that we did refer them to sometimes might have a clinician that could do the work, but didn't necessarily have a whole system that could support the clinician or the family. And so after at least a year of us getting together and complaining and talking about these things, we decided that we didn't want to just be part of the complainers. We wanted to be part of a solution. And so we shifted gears then and started thinking about what would it be like to open a nonprofit that built in what we knew was needed for kids and families in our communities And not just on a treatment side, but also on a prevention side. Like if we can do more of the prevention work, 
maybe we'll have less people who need intervention down the road. Mm. And so that built into kind of what that looked like. And I was looking to leave Head Start um, just because I was feeling called to do another part of my journey in my own professional growth. And um, that timing happened to be around when we also thought Ellison Center was ready to open. And so it was a natural progression to move into the executive director position there because I was overseeing a lot of the organization of getting us open and going at that time. And so that's how that journey came to be through that. And Tracy, you opened what month of what year? March of 2020. So that's challenging all in and of its own, which could be a whole other podcast, I'm sure. How to open a business in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if at that point in time, it was, I don't ever want to say that the fact that people were having significant mental health challenges is good, but in terms of starting a nonprofit with that work, we had a lot of clients who needed help. Tracy, in that space where parents and children rest together in a time of just a lot of fear, and I'm going to say divinely seeing the timing of your organization really launching at that time. Are there any stories around that that you saw really right away that you were the solution to a problem that we didn't even know was going to happen? Do you have any impact stories you could tell us generally? I think, honestly, one of the things that happened during that time is because we weren't an established agency with all of these, this is how it has to work. There wasn't necessarily this is how do we change to this new world of telehealth and things like for us, it's just like, let's just figure it out. And I don't think that we were necessarily stuck in this is the way it works. And now what does it look like? It was just like, oh. We're redesigned. People are like, how has that changed? I'm like, we didn't have a normal yet. So yeah. in some ways, we could be extremely flexible at that point. I think the other part, so at that time, it was myself and one other clinician that were the agency and the board of directors or our founders were also working in this work and people knew who we were. And so we were getting referrals almost immediately. As soon as people heard that we were open, we were getting referrals from local pediatricians and other mental health agencies because they knew that the families needed people with significant experience in this work. And so we were able to meet that need right at the beginning. And we've never once had to advertise to get our referrals. Like, yeah, because we just, I think part of it, that divine timing, we met the need right there. In fact, you have 80 families on your waiting list currently. We do. Hi, everybody. So Pamela and I talk about the ripple effect all of the time, and we can't think of an organization that has a larger ripple effect than the Ellison Center in our community here in central Minnesota. Serving families with young children, they help parents and caregivers help their children reduce stress and improve quality of life now and in the future. When we deal with mental health early on, we grow up to be healthier adults and leaders. Ellison Center has over 80 families on their waiting list. The demand is high, and yet they are poised to expand services with your help. They're currently raising $50,000 to expand their offices and add more providers and get those families off the waiting list faster. Whether you live in central Minnesota or you just care deeply about helping children, would you consider making a gift? We'll have the link to make a gift to the Ellison Center in our show notes. Thank you for listening. And now back to the podcast. So tell me though, there are people who are listening that probably still don't understand what it is you do. So what is infant mental health? Do you put toddlers on a couch? Is how do you, <laughs> what is infant mental health and how do you support families? 
I'm really glad you asked that, Tara, because oftentimes, actually, when I do presentations on this, I literally have a slide where there's like a couch with a baby laying on it. And there's like a therapist sitting next to them with their notepad. And I'm like, and it says on there, this is what infant mental health isn't, right? And so infant mental health, I'm going to give you the definition and then I'll talk a little bit about how we do the work. But the definition of infant mental health is recognizing the developing capacity of a child birth through the age of five to experience relationships and be engaged in relationships and connected in relationships. That's one part. Another part is for them to be able to explore and name and regulate from their emotional experiences. So we have relationships, we've got experience, and then we've got this idea around exploration. Young children learn from experiencing things, whether that's tasting wood blocks enough time and realize they actually don't taste good so we don't have to taste them as adults, or whether it's trying new things in the world or meeting people or trying to climb up the steps to a slide, like that exploration leads to their growth. And so it's holding this idea around like, how do the relationships look around this child? How are the emotions being handled or not? And then what does exploration look like? And we're holding that all in mind within a cultural context as well. Holding in mind that this doesn't necessarily look the same in all cultures, but the concepts are there are similar universally. And so when we think about a child and we maybe get a referral, we're looking at those pieces first. And they might give us insight as to where to start with a family. And infant mental health services are very family-based. The parent is as involved in the services and sometimes even more involved than the child is because we are only going to see them for maybe an hour or two a week, but that parent or that caregiver is going to be with them many hours a week. So we see this as building up and empowering the caregiver to be able to do for the child what the child needs. And sometimes that means exploring the caregiver's past experience of how they were parented, maybe how their own trauma experience that might be showing up in relationships with their child. We call them ghosts and angels in the nursery. Like what are those stories that have come with them through generations that might be showing up that they don't even necessarily always have words for? Um, and so there's lots of play. There's lots of sitting on the floor. There's lots of fun toys. Um, we've got great pillows and blankets for cuddling. We've got snacks. So it's really an environment that's set up for families to have this time to play together and be together in maybe different ways than they have been in the past. Tracy, before we jump fully into how all of this impacts us as adults, I want to just ask a few more questions about the Ellison Center and the work that you do, because I feel strongly that people need to know about the amazing work that you do. It's helpful to understand how you come around and support a family what are some of the outcomes that you see with families who go through this journey and working with the Ellison Center? What are those tangible outcomes to say, oh, they're making progress? What does that look like? Progress to me looks to, so we've got, I call it, we've got our three major programs and one of them's intervention or the therapy services. And so progress from that might be, for example, a family where uh, maybe there's been some significant trauma that has happened. Maybe it was a, a baby who was in the NICU as an infant. And now there's, we're seeing these behavioral challenges and we're seeing the parent with some really just struggling to parent their young child. And we might think about what was it like for this baby and for these parents to have their baby in the NICU? What was that world like? And how we can help make sense of that experience that might've happened. It also could be that we've maybe got foster parents who are trying to raise kids that were had some significant neglect or have experienced abuse and trying to help them hold in mind 
how developmentally different an experience has been for a child who has had some pretty negative experiences early on and how parenting needs to look different for those children as well. And so sometimes progress or, or outcomes that we might see is we might actually see the parent and the child smiling and laughing together. Mm-hmm. Not have seen that at the start of services where it was much more stressed and this child's not sleeping and I'm not sleeping and we're overwhelmed. And so we might actually see them coming in, making eye contact. We might see some laughter. We might see some joy showing up, which is, I think, as a clinician, one of the most empowering things to see. Mm-hmm. We also might see that this the parent is, oh, they're sleeping through the night now or this child is able to separate from me and go into childcare and they can make it through the day because we've got some tools in place to support them. So we see some shifts in behaviors. We see parents feeling less overwhelmed by the behaviors. There are times that because the parent has a different understanding of the behavior itself might not change, but the stress level has changed because the parent might understand, oh, this is typical for their development or I'm helping them through this. And now that I feel like I've got some tools, I can do this. So in the intervention side, those might be some indicators of progress. Our other kind of areas of service, one of them is what we call our prevention services. And so we offer some parent education classes. Our main um, curriculum that we use is called Circle of Security. It's an eight-week DVD-based or video-based intervention that we use where families get to watch these videos and talk and reflect with other caregivers with the help of a holder for the group, who's usually one of our clinicians. And from that, we might see families that are like, we actually talk a little bit about the ghosts and the angels in their own nursery as parents. So we look at what was it like for them to be parented, as well as what does their child and this unique experience of this child like um, in their parenting. Um, That curriculum uses another term called shark music, which kind of refers to like, when that thing is going on, that negative narrative or that past experience is coming up and the reason that they use shark music is they play this beautiful scene in the video of walking down to a beach and they play it with beautiful music and then they play it with the Jaws theme song. And you can feel the difference, even though the picture is the same, it feels different. So it builds on that concept that it might not be a dangerous situation, but your body or your past experience might be giving it the the score of a scary movie. And so we see parents being able to say things like, oh, I noticed my shark music when my child did this. And I was able to calm myself so I could be there for my child. So we hear parents speaking differently about parenting and about their own awareness. And so that's one of the really positive outcomes we see from that. We also do some home visiting work within that as well in our prevention model. And then our third area that we provide is in something called reflective consultation and training. And reflective consultation is actually providing individual and group support to the professionals who are holding families doing this work. And so we, like I was actually just meeting with a group of public health nurses this morning before the podcast, and we were talking about like when families won't accept services or when we're offering something and they won't take it, or babies are now six months old and the relationship satisfaction is going down and talking about how those are all normal things and how we can work through them. So it's a, it's a supportive place. Some people think it's like group therapy and in some ways it is, but it's really an area, a place to settle and speak about the emotional difficulties of doing this work. Our, this work in birth to five or early childhood stirs up our protective factors. It stirs up our desire to nurture. Or if I could just bring this family home with me, it might stir up our own experiences, our own past experiences. And so we have to have a place to process those things. I refer to it as we all have that emotional sponge and all of the work that we're doing is filling up that sponge. 
And reflective consultation is a place to come and wring out that sponge so you can go back and do the work. And so we see lots of indicators of progress from that too, from how those professionals are approaching the work or how they're feeling about it or how their new insights are brought to families and they bring that information back and say how it affected the family that they were able to step into that differently. And we also see people staying in the field longer and burning out less and there's less stress when they have that supportive um, experience as well. So, so critical. <laughs> yeah, it might be more than you asked for, but those are our three areas and what that might look like in those areas from those different services. We we talk all the time, Tracy, about the ripple effect of leadership, that one healthy leader, one toxic leader has incredible impact on the people they lead and their families and their friends, and the ripple goes out into the community. But one healthy leader also has such a strong impact on the well-being of, of those that they lead. And I, one of the reasons I get so excited about the work that you do at Elson Center, and you just talked about it, was the ripple effect of all three of your services. Yeah. So the therapy and the intervention, helping them just thrive, go from survival to thrive now, which mm -hmm. is makes a difference to that family today, but also into the future. So can you talk about, I, I was listening to you talk about one of, one of the ways you measure progress was maybe the parent and child are now enjoying each other. And I know only enough to be dangerous about attachment. <laughs> Pamela knows way more than I do. So the two of you can talk about this, but can you tell me, tell us or tell our audience a little bit about attachment theory, how it impacts the work you do. And, and we're going to use that to bridge into the leadership piece. Er. Hey everyone, this is Tara. You know how some podcasts will pause in the middle to give you an advertisement or a word from their sponsors? Well, we don't have sponsors, but we do have an important opportunity that we wanna share with you. Listen, I think that you and I can agree that the old school top-down leadership model just doesn't work anymore. It would be nice if it did because it is easier <laughs> to just command and have people pay attention. But honestly, people don't work that way because relationships don't work that way and leadership no longer works that way. And so we have developed a program called Grounded Leadership and we are seeing incredible results with the cohorts that we're currently running. From emerging and new leaders to executives and business owners, leaders at every level are growing and grounding in their leadership through this program. Grounded Leadership is a comprehensive practice that ensures emotional maturity while encouraging individual growth and building thriving teams. Listen, titles are about authority, but they don't really influence change. Our leadership practice is what determines our ability to influence others. This journey is ideal for all leaders who are ready to maximize their potential, take responsibility for their influence. We have a cohort starting in January of 2024. It's gonna be a mixed cohort of leaders from across the country from different organizations, and we really think that you would enjoy it. Not only that, we think you would find high value and there would be a really high ROI for you, your leadership, and your team. If this is at all of interest to you, please reach out. In the show notes, we're going to have a PDF that you can click and see all the program details, but also you can email me, tara at aligntransform.com, schedule a quick 15 to 30 minute consult to get some of your questions answered, and we can determine if this is a program that's a fit for you and if you're a fit for the program. If this is of interest to you, we hope to hear from you. And now back to the podcast.
Sure. Saying that we're going to talk about attachment is pretty much like saying we're going to take a lifelong journey of learning and put it into a podcast. No, we're just barely touched this some of this. This is attachment comes from many years of research. Uh, John Bowlby was the father of attachment, and he was doing a lot of research and started to see these patterns emerge. And we like to say that attachment is putting a name to the pattern of the strategy of how I keep adults close to me. So infants are born as a biological need to have adults take care of them. They are dependent on the adults around them. And so they actually are using the feedback from their caregiver to figure out, like, how do I keep you close enough to me to keep me alive? So a, a lot of the attachment research, it came out of this concept of how do children communicate their needs to parents so that parents will meet their needs? And it's just this back and forth that happens. And so attachment is capturing what has that pattern of caregiving looked like between this caregiver and the child? Um, and there's some other people came alongside of John Bowlby and was doing some other research with that as well. And it actually gave us some categories of attachment. Um, so I also like to say in this that we typically will say that a child has a primary attachment figure. So attachments are different than relationships. So a child might have a relationship with grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles, but the attachment figure is who the child turns to in a time of stress or need. So typically the person they turn to is their primary attachment figure. Now, if they're at childcare, that might be their childcare provider. If they're at home and mom is home, it might be with mom. If they're home and dad is home, it might be with dad. If they're home and mom and dad are both home, it might depend on what their need is, who they go to based on who can meet that need. So even though they might have a primary relationship, they're also experiencing different varieties of those attachment patterns from those different caregivers. Um, so we usually have kind of a primary way that we respond, but we also might have some secondary experiences of attachment as well. And the reason I'm saying that is sometimes we can get stuck in that I am this type of attachment. And in reality, it's much more complex than it's like strength finders, right? These are my top five, but these next five influence those. And all of these are play a part. And so attachment is that complex as well. But we look at these kind of What's my go-to way of handling relationships is what we might say for attachment. So as a bridge uh, to our podcast number two, I would love to talk about attachment in regards to yourself. If you would be willing to use yourself as an example and now as a leader, because we do call it an attachment style. And I like to encourage people within that is that styles can change, that it is something that we can grow into. How have you seen for yourself that your attachment style, perhaps of who you were as a young child and now where you've grown as a leader, as an executive director? Mm, Pamela, that's a big question. <laughs> it's going to be the bridge question. Tracy. The bridge question. So, <laughs> and also a little bit of vulnerability here. I know. I was going to say at your comfort level, Tracy, you at your use, comfort you level. You use someone named J Joe. You need to. <laughs> okay. I also think transparency sometimes in our leadership journeys is part of this work. So our attachment patterns are formed by the time we're two years old. So these are things that are developed very early. So oftentimes when we talk about infant mental health, people are like, but I'm not going to work with infants. I'm like, but everybody was an infant. And so when we talk about attachment, and when I talk about this with families too, we're thinking about what was the first two years of life like for you? And then how has that impacted? And so in my own journey as a leader and in my own journey of understanding my own attachment, 
Um, I would say in grad school, if somebody had asked me what my attachment style was, I would have been like, I was secure. I was, that's like the gold standard. There's what we call four styles of attachment and secure is the, that's what everybody wants to say they are. There's lots of varieties of attached and secure as well. But anyways, I would have said I was secure. I had parents that were pretty responsive to me. I had parents who cared about me. They showed up when I needed them. And, and that was a really good thing. And as I've gone through this journey myself, I have actually come to learn that I'm a little bit more on the dismissive side or the avoidant side mm -hmm. of attachment. So do you want me to give the little spectrum of attachment styles? Please do. So I like to call it a spectrum and not a category because I think it also speaks to this idea that we slide from one to the other or we can move between them and the growth that might happen. So if you think of a spectrum as the secure attachment being in the middle, Secure means that I learned early on that when I have a need adult, an adult will come help me and I can rely on these adults. And even when things are stressful, I can trust that those adults are going to take care of me. So that's the secure attachment in the middle of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you might see what we call more of an anxious or preoccupied attachment. That attachment style, the parenting experience of that was more Sometimes when I cry, they come and help me and sometimes they don't. So I don't know if I can completely rely on them all the time to be there for me. And we might see that with a parent who's maybe got like some postpartum depression or a parent who's really anxious themselves, that it's hard to be emotionally present for their child. And we might also just, we see sometimes in those situations as like when I'm working with young kids, the child might actually look clingy or have to stay very close to their caregiver or cue a lot, which might look like crying or might look like whining in order to keep their caregiver close. Because I'm worried that from the child's perspective, I'm going to give them words. Like if I don't remind them that I'm here, they might forget to take care of me. Mm -hmm. Might be the way that I would capture what that anxious attachment looks like. So if you slide to the other end of the spectrum, then is where we have our dismissive or our avoidant attachment. So that attachment style, it's more that we may have learned early on that my big emotions make people go away from me. So if I cry a lot, I might have to go to my room and take care of it myself, or they might literally walk away from me, or my feelings are too big. So the child actually learns to hold back their emotions or to avoid their emotions or to pretend they're not there in order to keep the caregiver close. So in other words, as long as I look calm, my caregiver will stay close to me to take care of me. And we have 70% of the population that's walking around as either secure or anxious or dismissive. Like we can be highly functioning adults that are very successful and our attachment styles, even if they weren't secure, can still bring us great strengths, especially when we have awareness around them. So I don't want anybody to hear this and think that if you land on one of those sides, that, that means that something's wrong with you or that you're broken. It's just naturally noticing what your natural reaction might be in relationships. The fourth category or the fourth style that we talk about is called disorganized. So that means it doesn't quite fit on this spectrum of, of being secure or anxious or on the dismissive side. Dis disorganized typically means that there was significant fear of my caregiver. So I couldn't bring things to my caregiver out of fear of being hurt by them. Not just that they might turn away or that they might not be able to meet my needs, but that it was actually scary. So we see that more connected with like significant abuse type of situations where the same person who's supposed to take care of me is the same person I'm scared of, which is a pretty impossible dilemma for a young child. So the disorganized attachment typically leads to a lot more mental health concerns and a lot more challenges. 
the cool part is with attachment is it's something we grow through. I see many people who will work through some of their early experiences and they might actually slide from that dismissive more towards the secure. And we see that with the anxious side too. And we've seen people who go from a disorganized attachment, maybe they don't get to secure, but they might get to dismissive or anxious and can be much more present in a relationship because they can learn that relationships can be safe enough to engage in. So there's lots of research that goes into, but I think it's helpful to understand that there's these different categories or different styles of attachment. I really appreciate you giving us the primer. And I think for me, like so many connections are made between what you're talking about and what we see in, in the coaching that we do with people all of the time is how did what happened for you, to you, with you inform some of your survival techniques and strategies that are leading to behavior. Some of it might be supported by our culture and lauded, praised, and some of it might not be, but it, it was all part of how you learned to, as you were talking about, to attach, but also how you learned to survive in your environment. And bringing awareness to that, I think is really powerful. We're going to continue the conversation in part two. We're really just getting started. So in part two, we're going to dive deeper into this and how it impacts how we show up as leaders. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. And we will see everyone next week. Come on.